Father, we thank you for uh, your grace to us. Father, we thank you for uh, saving us and redeeming us and changing us and transforming us. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We believe it is true, and, and we ask you to just prepare the soil of our heart to receive the, the seed of the word. Father, I pray that we would, we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. Father, please remove the distractions, remove the, the obstacles, the sin in our heart, and God, help us to, to obey and to follow and to trust and to lean upon and to love and treasure you today. You, Jesus, you're our king. Father, we ask that you would anoint these men to do your work today. Speak through them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Dr. Pennington, come on up. I got that. All right, yes, it is wonderful to be back here. I think it's the first time I came here seven or eight years ago. and I have some very dear friends here as well, and so it's great to be back. I don't know what God's up to this time. My luggage has still not arrived. I got here Friday night, so if you recognize this sport coat, it's Pastor Jason's, um, so you might see it again next week. And uh, also, I was violently sick all night and thought I was not going to be able to preach, and I was so sad, and I woke up like Ebenezer Scrooge and realized I hadn't missed Christmas morning. I had not missed it. I was, I was healed. In fact, the, honestly, the men gathered around and prayed for me last night that God would raise me up, and, and here I am. So I'm very, very thankful to God for that. So, so uh, I don't know if God didn't want me to speak today or Satan. I'm not sure. I'm going to go with Satan. Uh, so... Uh, it is it is a joy to be back here and uh, to be with such, you know, Jason mentioned that I'm at one of the Southern Baptist seminaries. It is just so, I feel so humbled and honored to be among you and I don't use people, you really bless me, so I'm very thankful for that. I just want to express that to you. Well, we are going to be in the Sermon on the Mount today. Am I having sound problems? Everything okay? Okay. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount today and we'll turn there in just a minute. But to introduce this, I want to... Uh, paint a picture for you of a picture that I have. So my wife and I were back in college in the late 80s and early 90s, and some of our dear friends um, <clears throat> ended up going in the mission field to Hungary. We went into the corporate world for a while before I went to seminary, etc. And <clears throat> our friends, when they got back from several years serving in Hungary, they brought us this poster that I still have that's really neat. It's in Hungarian. I don't speak any Hungarian. Um, but it's, it's pretty obvious what this poster is doing because it's telling a story. And I wonder if you've seen this poster in some other language as well. Um, but it's, it's telling a story. It's oriented top to bottom. And on the right-hand side of the poster, there's a small part of the poster that depicts people doing various activities. So going to church, farmers faithfully... Uh, taking care of their fields, um, <clears throat> people helping the sick, going, you know, doing all these positive things. And at the top end of that, uh, at the top of that way of the, uh, of the side of the poster, there's the celestial city, angels, and, and uh, God's glory is there. On the other side of the poster, in fact, most of the poster is taken up with a much broader part, which had, depicts people doing all kinds of bad stuff. So... Uh, especially bad stuff considered in the 1900s, which is early or late 1800s where this poster came from. So people playing cards and people dancing, and, and, but some really bad stuff like going to a brothel and children stealing apples off a tree and, and people doing dog fights and punching each other. So lots of bad stuff. And what you can imagine that at the end of that part of the poster, the top of that, there's this not a celestial city, but a city of destruction. So fire, 
<clears throat> and burning and demons around. And you can maybe imagine what Bible verse is at the bottom of that. Now, again, I can't read Hungarian. Most of you probably can't as well. But I bet you can guess. Any guess on what Bible verse is there at the bottom of that? <clears throat> it's our text for today, which is Matthew chapter 7. Excuse me. <clears throat> which is... I better get that water. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Here it is. Enter by the narrow gate. As Jesus says, for easy and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and few are those who find it. But the narrow and difficult way leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now that poster, have you seen a poster like that? You know kind of what I'm talking about? That poster, I think, depicts how almost all Christians have very understandably read those verses, Matthew 7, 13, and 14, throughout church history, recognizing what is certainly true, that bad behaviors do lead to destruction, both now and forever. And good behaviors, in their own way, are good for you and lead to life, and at least life now. And so I think that's a very understandable you know, set of verses to put under that picture. However, I want to suggest to you today in our brief time together that as true as that is, that behaviors do affect our lives, that's actually not I think what Jesus means by these verses, even though that's how we've usually read them. And when I show to you that I think he means something far more radical and far more powerful and far more challenging to you and me today than even those, even that challenging idea is. So what I want to do is I want to pray once more that God would speak to us and then look at the Sermon on the Mount together for a few minutes and ask what, what Jesus might be saying by these powerful verses. Let's pray together once more. <clears throat> Our good God, we thank you that you send the Holy Spirit, that we're not alone, that it's not just us trying to figure out things, but that you are the teacher and empowerer and you open eyes. I pray that you'd open my eyes and open the eyes of these dear people today as well. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. My wife, Tracy, is a mosaic artist, a professional mosaic artist, so that means she takes Italian vitreous tile glass tile and she nips it and shapes it and puts it into pieces to make a much bigger picture. And as I think about Matthew 7, 13, and 14, I think of these verses like one of her little tessera is the technical name for it, or one of these pieces of Italian glass that when you look at it, it's beautiful in and of itself and powerful in its own way. But to actually understand how it's what it's saying, you actually have to pull back from it and see that it's part of a bigger picture. And I think that's what's going on in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. It's a beautiful set of verses, very powerful image, but I think it's saying something much more powerful, as I've suggested, by looking at it in its whole context. Or to change the analogy a little bit, do you remember those mind-bender pictures from Ranger Rick magazine or Holiday or um, uh, Highlights or something where it's a, it's so, you're so close to it, it's a very blown-up picture, you can't quite see what it is. You need to sort of be able to pull back and figure out. And I think that's what's going on in these verses for us today. And so what I want to do is I want to do a sprint through the first few chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, this first section of teaching in the New Testament. I want to run through chapters 5 and 6 very briefly and offer what I would like to call a cardiographic reading of the sermon. Now, I feel kind of good about this because when I was here a few years ago and preached at Lincoln, 
Avenue. I asked Jason, Pastor Jason, he graciously allowed me to preach three different sermons. I just thought I'd go for it and be crazy and do it instead of one sermon. And so I preached from chapters five and six, and I thought maybe I can finish what I started today and preach from, from Matthew seven. So what I want to do though is go back and run through five and six. So if you have a Bible uh, or you can look on with somebody or just listen, I want to help you understand what's going on before we get to Matthew seven. Okay, so how's the Sermon on the Mount begin? It begins with these very famous sayings, the Beatitudes, or if you want the really technical, cool term, they're macarisms is what they're called. And these Beatitudes are Jesus teaching uh, what way of life, what way of being in the world is going to result in true blessedness or flourishing, which is the question that anybody asks, what all philosophies and religions have always asked. Jesus gives his own answer to that. We believe the true answer to that. And what does he say in these Beatitudes? Well, he says that the way of blessedness or flourishing are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, that is, those who are longing for God's kingdom to come and set the world to right, those who are meek and humble, those who hunger and thirst after something, after righteousness, God setting the world to right, those who have hearts of mercy, those who are pure in heart, those who have hearts of peacemaking. Those are the ways of being in the world that actually are true flourishing, Jesus says. Now, here's the question. What's consistent between all those? Across all of those, what's consistent? Well, I would like you to know this about me. I am totally into acronyms. For some reason, it's one of the weird quirks of my life. That is, I love acronyms. You know what an acronym is? Well, one of the greatest gifts my wife ever gave me was this T-shirt that says A-A-A-A-A, American Academy Against the Abuse of Acronyms. That's, that like totally is me. I, I love acronyms. I, find, I don't know what it is about them. They're very interesting to me. And so when I think of the Beatitudes, the acronym that works for me is P-O-H. What's consistent across all these Beatitudes? It's a P-O-H. It is a posture of heart. The consistent thing across all these is that unlike many people in the world saying, you want to be blessed or you want to flourish, do these things. Instead, Jesus says, here's a posture of heart that will result in blessing. There's an irony there because the blessing is actually a blessing of suffering and persecution as well mixed in, but it's still all a posture of heart. So then how does the Sermon on the Mount go on? Well, if you turn uh, then to chapter 5, these very famous verses in 5, 17 to 20, Jesus explains he hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to explain it, that is to fulfill it. And then he says in 520, one of the most important verses of the Bible, he says, I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now you got to let that sink in. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees in Jesus' day were the good guys. They were the deacons at Lincoln Avenue Church of Jerusalem. All right? These are the ones, they're the conservatives. They're the fundamentalists. They not only obey all of God's laws, they've even created extra laws to make sure they don't disobey God's laws. They spend two of every seven days fasting and in prayer. How many of you do that? Right? They give 10% or more of everything they have. Every, when they go to the grocery store and buy a little thing of dill, they give 10% of that to God as well. Right? Everything. They are very conservative. They're very righteous people. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to be greater than that. What in the world? Well, he explains what he means by that in 521 to 48. What does he mean by this? He means the same thing he's just said in the Beatitudes. God wants a certain posture of heart. 
Like, look at those verses. You're familiar with these probably. Some of you are. He says, don't, uh, you've heard it said you should not murder, but I tell you, yeah, murder's bad for sure, but there's something far more important than murdering. What if your heart is full of anger and judgment and wickedness and wanting someone else to be destroyed? Jesus says, that's not the righteousness. Not murdering is not the righteousness I care about. I care about the heart. Or he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Of course, Jesus agrees with that. You should not commit adultery. But he says, there's something far more important than not committing adultery. What about your heart? Is your heart full of covetousness for something else or someone else, lusting? Then Jesus says, you do not have a righteousness. Sure, you may do the external stuff, but you don't have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because they're good guys. The Pharisees are not committing adultery. The Pharisees are not killing anybody. Right? But they lack something in their hearts. And it goes on. Then in chapter 6, I want to suggest to you it's the same thing. The same posture of heart comes up in that he gives examples of what it means to obey uh, God in terms of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. So giving to help the poor and prayer and fasting. And he says the same thing again, that you can instead do these good works of service, but you can do them for the wrong motive, the wrong reason, which is instead to get the praise of men, the P-O-M is the acronym to use here. The praise of men might be your motivation. If so, friends, that's not a righteousness that God cares about. So there are more things we could say in the end of chapter 6 about anxiety and end of chapter 7. It's the same thing. I hope you see that there's a pattern here, that all throughout the sermon, Jesus is emphasizing what I call, again, a cardiographic reading. God sees and cares about the heart of us. Now, here we get then to our verses that we know very well and that the Hungarians thought worthwhile of putting on a poster, which again is 7, 13, and 14. And let's read them once more in light of that and ask what they might mean. Jesus says at the end of all this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life and fewer those who find it. When we read these verses, I think we naturally think of it in terms of the Hungarian poster way. We think of it as the broad and, and easy way is the way of doing a bunch of immoral behaviors. And the narrow and difficult way is the way of doing a bunch of righteous behaviors, like coming to church, paying your tithe, and we tend to think of ourselves, yeah, it's true. There are more people that do that easy way who don't come to church. I mean, I see some empty seats here, and I bet there are a lot of people still in bed right now, those pagans, right? In fact, probably more people in bed than are here, right? And so we say, yeah, few are those who find it, right? We're the ones who are coming to church and, and going on mission trips and giving money, right? There's very few of us. And I want to say, you know, that's true, generally. But I also want to say to you that I don't think the emphasis is on the numbers here as much as on the, the difficulty and ease. Again, what Jesus is saying here is the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That's, I think that's the emphasis in these verses. So the question then remains, so what is the easy way and what's the hard way? It's not just how many people do each of them. What's the easy way? What's the hard way? Well, friends, I want to suggest to you that in light of all that Jesus has been saying all throughout, this mosaic piece is part of a bigger picture in this sermon, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is that Jesus is saying the way that is broad 
and easy that leads to destruction is the way of religion. It's the way of the Pharisees. It's the way of coming to church every week, of not cheating too much on your taxes. Life's when things are pretty good. It's the way of, you know, not committing adultery. Right? It's the way of not punching your neighbor. All these good Christian things. But that, friends, is actually the easy and broad way. Because remember, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were good guys. They obeyed all that God said, plus some. And yet Jesus has them in his crosshairs, crosshairs at all points because, friends, that's the easy way. What's the hard way? The hard way is starting to pay attention to the deeper inner person, the spiritual inner man and woman that says, God, I want you to not only prevent me from committing adultery, but I know you care about my covetous and lustful heart. That is the hard way. That's the narrow way that leads to life. And do you see that this is consistently what Jesus has been saying all throughout? Jesus doesn't shift gears and say, okay, here comes some moralism or behaviorism at the end. He's saying the same thing he's been saying all along. And so, friends, I I want to challenge you and challenge me to realize that, that this that what is radical about what Jesus is saying here is that he is not letting us off the hook and saying, yeah, it's okay, do a bunch of external things and that'll be all right. He is pushing us to do the hard work of internal examination. Spiritual growth, friends, is a deepward, in, uh, an inward deepening that goes on throughout our lives. From childhood to death, the, to grow spiritually is to grow inwardly to recognize that God wants more and more depth of heart from us and reality in the inner person. That's what God sees and that's what God cares about. Think with me for a moment about a, a, a man that Jesus meets and talks with only 10 or 11, 12 chapters later. You know this story in Matthew 19. You can just listen or, <clears throat> or turn there. Remember when he meets this very godly young man, any man that you'd want to be Getting, collecting the offering for you or sending off to seminary, right? He meets this rich, young, righteous ruler who comes to him in Matthew nineteen sixteen. He comes up to him and says to Jesus, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That same life that Jesus is talking about in chapter 7. And he said, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, do you hear that phrase? The same one he just used in chapter 7. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay, so Jesus is a smart cookie. He knows what he's doing. He's drawing this man in. Keep the commandments. And the, he, he knows this man's story. And, he says, and the man says to him, which ones? And Jesus said, okay, uh, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Those very same ones we just saw in chapter 5. You shall not uh, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ten commandments. Awesome. But the young man said, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? So there's something at work in him that even he recognizes that even though he's kept all the external commandments, which is a tall order, I bet most of us couldn't say that we've done that, and yet he still lacks something. And here, Jesus goes for the jugular here in love. He says in 21, 
If you would be perfect, that is, if you're going to be whole, a whole person, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. What is Jesus getting at here? He's going for what matters to this young man, the heart issue of his treasure. Do you remember indeed in Jack, back in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a man who's the, who models where your treasure is, there your heart will be. This is a man who is the opposite of Matthew 13, the parable Jesus tells, where he says, this, there was one who found a pearl of great price and sold everything else he had to get it, or he found a treasure in a field and sold all that he had to get that field. This man is the opposite of that. He externally has kept all the commandments, but what does he lack? He lacks a heart orientation that is willing to give all to God. And the result is he does not follow Jesus. Or think of another example to push it even more. And as I was just telling someone right before the service, if this is a radical, what I'm about to say is scary. If this weren't in the Bible, then you should punch me and tar me and drive me out of town. But this is in the Bible. Let's think for a minute about the difference between the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David. Let's just do a little analysis of their lives. King Saul ends up making a wreck of his life and being rejected by God. King David ends up being given the eternal promise that a son will always sit on his throne, and Jesus himself gets the title Son of David. What's the difference between these two men? Well, let's look at their ledger sheet of sin and righteousness. Saul's a good warrior. He's a good leader in many ways. He blows it later. But what's his major sin? Well, when he's called to go and lead the armies of Israel in a battle, and they win all the spoils of, of war, and they're supposed to make sacrifices according to God's law, he doesn't know where the prophet Samuel is. Everybody's pressuring him we're supposed to make these sacrifices. What are we supposed to do with it? So he goes ahead and does the proper sacrifice. He does it rightly, except for that he's not the priest. It's wrong, but it's kind of understandable, right? At least in the terms of it was a pressure situation, right? But it's wrong. He disobeyed. Okay, fine. But let's think about David. What did David do? God had blessed him for decades had provided for him, had raised him up from Goliath on, and raised him up and made him the greatest king of all of Israel, still to this day, the greatest king of all of Israel, given him dominion over everything, and promised him these eternal promises. And what does he do? He's looking down from the top of his castle, and he sees a beautiful woman, lusts for her in his heart, commits adultery with her, and then when he realizes he's about to get found out, he kills her husband. Friends, if you and I were doing a counting ledger of who we want to be an, uh, a pastor of our church or who we want to be an upstanding citizen of society, I don't think most of us are going to go with David over Saul. Now, hear me. I, I'm not, God is not saying that what David did doesn't matter. Oh, it's all fine. Behaviors matter. They affect our lives. They affect the lives of others. There were consequences in David's life, weren't there? However, why is Saul condemned and David commended. The Bible tells us. Because David was a man after God's own what? Heart. 
David was a man who, as Luther would say, sinned boldly and repented boldly as well. He was a man who was wholehearted. He's like Peter. Don't you love Peter? Peter's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. In one minute he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. We have nobody else. Let me walk on water. And he's doing it. And he's also the one that says, ah, and, and falls within moments. And he's also the one that says, uh, Jesus, you know, you're not quite understanding what God's will is for you. And gets, get behind me, Satan. That's Peter. He's a wholehearted guy, right, in everything he does. And you know what? God cares about our hearts. He wants you to be a wholehearted person. If you would be whole, as he says, to the rich young ruler, then sell all that you possess. So friends, what I am suggesting to you is that this Matthew 7, 13, and 14 is not an anomaly in the scripture. It is the same thing that Jesus is teaching and God is teaching all throughout. God sees and cares about the heart, and that's the hard way. So, what do you do about it? Tonight, this afternoon, Wednesday, next Tuesday. What does this really look like for you? Well, let me plainly exhort you to just at least do this. Be sensitive to what's going on in your heart when you face situations. Because that's what God sees and cares about. If that's what he sees and cares about, that's what you and I should see and care about. What's going on in our hearts in situations? I think of a situation that... Is, one, is an example of many kind of situations. One that happened to me a few years ago, I was teaching, just a really good example of this, I was teaching a middle school Bible class, right? which as I always say, that's the Protestant version of purgatory, I think, in terms of, uh, especially good for a PhD, all boys, it was all boys, middle school Bible, I mean, I, it was craziness, you know? And I had this one class period where I thought, wow, that was like, went really well. It was, we did Genesis 1, which is very controversial, of course, for many people. I laid out different ways Christians have read it throughout history and talked about different options and encouraged them to wrestle with different readings of Genesis 1, etc. And uh, afterwards, I thought, wow, that was like the best class ever. They were totally tracking with me. You know, they were teachable. It's all great. Well, imagine my dismay when I hear the next day that all the mothers are talking and are mad at me. That I had, And the junior high boys had reported inaccurately things that I had said. You know, funny that. You can imagine the misreporting that happens. And so this one fine Christian woman that I knew, who I knew in many other contexts, was calling these other mothers, and they were all upset about what I had said. And I was so hurt and so angry as well. And, and I thought, who do they think I am? I don't need this. I'll just go back to teaching mature seminary students. I'm trying to labor to teach their junior high boys. Forget them. You know, those are some of the reactions I had in my heart. And then so I was saying, oh, I'm just going to fix this. So I'm going to sit down and write an email. And it had a lot of fire in the email about all the wrong they had done to not come to me rather than talk behind my back, et cetera. Thankfully, my wife looked over my shoulder and said, I don't think you want to send that email. <laughs> right? So that was good. So I took a deep breath and came back. And uh, she saved me from many bad emails, actually. And so I thought about it and realized, okay, wait a minute. I need to handle this with maturity I need to handle this as a Christian leader who's known in town, et cetera. So I will address them humbly, take the low road, and you know, ask them to talk with me about this and whatever. So it was all good. And it all worked out well enough and, and fine. But I realized in the midst of it and later that you know, while I have the experience as a person who lives in Western civilization, who lives in civilized society, to know that it would have been dumb of me to like blow up on them, like that would have had consequences. 
What I wasn't dealing with was the fact that there was something more in that situation than just my choices of how I handled it behaviorally, and that is, what's going on in my heart? Why do I have such an over-exaggerated sense of my reputation being upheld? Why am I so angry? You know, anger, friends, is one of the most important emotions to pay attention to because anger reveals a lot about what's going on in our hearts. Anger is usually actually a secondary emotion. Usually under anger, I think, is either fear or shame. So when you're angry, ask yourself, why am I angry? Because that, man, it is very revealing. And, and to just begin in this situation to really ask the heart, the hard questions. What is going on? Why is this situation so upsetting me? And what do I need to deal with at the heart level? Here, not just at the behavioral level. I did the right thing. I handled it without blowing up on them, even though I was in the right. But what God wanted for me in that situation was a deeper heart work. What about you? Maybe there's something that happened this morning. Maybe you had a fight with your spouse on the way to church. It's never happened before. It's the first time ever uh, for all of us. Uh, maybe something happened last weekend that you're still upset about. Who knows what's happening? going to come our way this week. I want to invite you, friends, to start paying attention to what God cares about, the inner person and your reaction to those situations, because there's a righteousness that has to surpass merely external behavior. There's a way that is narrow that is the way of paying attention to God's work in our hearts. So, you know, maybe today as we close... You know, maybe you are not a Christian. Maybe you're still trying to figure this thing out, which we're thrilled you're here. I want to say to you, this is an invitation to what the gospel is. This is an invitation to really saying that, you know what, you don't have to fix everything in your life before you can become a Christian. Right? Because guess what? You're never going to fix everything in your life. What God cares about is your heart orientation towards Him, a humility and a trust in him, not in yourself, to get everything right. But maybe you've been a Christian for a week or 40 years. This is also an invitation to you, friends. This is God's living word inviting you to another level of gospel living. You're not too old to hear the gospel again, friends. And what you need to hear, if you've been a Christian a long time, is the same message that's here, that this is an invitation to a way of being in the world that is open to God completely. This is an invitation that says, I am tired of trying to be a good person. This is an invitation to freedom. Because, friends, there is so much freedom in just letting go of you trying to get it all right. There is so much freedom in just saying, God, I, you know what, I, I look good on the outside, maybe not commit adultery and murder, but my heart is messed up. My heart is full of wickedness and lust and covetousness. And God, you know that, so I'm not going to hide it anymore. Stop trying to put on a good face, friends. That's not helping you at all. God knows who you are, and the good news is he welcomes you. He says, I know your wicked heart. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not calling you to a big list of external behaviors. He's calling you to a posture of heart. And anyone can do that. This is not just for the guys who have their their lives in order. You look at pastors and you say, wow, they really have their life in order. This is not just for pastors. This is for everyone. Anyone can have a heart of brokenness before God. That's the gospel.
This is not for good people. This is for real people. And I invite you into this heart posture toward God with Jesus' smiling face inviting you into this hard but beautiful way of honesty with him. I'm going to pray, and then uh, Pastor Jason and maybe Gary are going to be up here. And um, as there's some singing, I, I just want to say I want to pray for you. I want to hold your hand and bless you. If you're, maybe you're becoming a Christian, but I think more likely for many of you, you just, you're in a place where you need somebody to bless you. And I just want to say I want to be up here, and if I can hold your hand and speak a blessing to you, um, please come and let me do that for you. Let's pray together. Our good God, we thank you for the gospel of freedom and life and joy. Holy Spirit, come and deepen your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You do what God's telling you to do today.